It is always a, a, a blessed time for us to have um, families uh, who have children that they want to bring forward for dedication unto the Lord. And uh, this, this morning I want to ask Chris and Liz Aguilar to bring forth uh, Jonah, uh, Jonah Ian Aguilar. This, of course, is the Shema Israel, and it begins in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. And when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as fretless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And certainly the emphasis of all of this is to say that when God blesses us with our children, that immediately we realize the necessity of God's word not only in our own lives, but especially in theirs. That as they're growing, they will be within a, a home and a house that, uh, where the Word of God is, is, is primary. It is the most important thing. It is foremost in their lives. And uh, we here, as a part of their church family, we, we come alongside of them. We pray for them. And we keep them in our prayers. And, and uh, today, we all together will, will, will pray for Chris and for Liz and for, for, for Jonah and, uh, and, and all of their family because we realize the, the importance. We're, we're living in, in dangerous times. We live in perilous times. And uh, it is perilous because man has rejected the Word of God. Man has rejected the things of God. But we have not. And they have not. That's why they're here. And they believe and they trust that the Word of God is still not only relevant, but it is indeed necessary. And may I say desperately necessary that we live and stand upon it and that we teach it even to the very young. And so today we, we want to pray with them and ask God's blessing upon Jonah, that he will grow strong and healthy, that as he does grow, that he will be brought up in the, in the very dedicated lives of his mom and dad and in, in their teaching him the love of Christ and the Word of God. So join us as we pray for them this morning. Well, hi, fella. How you doing? Sizing me up, I see. Okay. That's really important because I'm going to try to hold you. And we'll see if that works. Okay? Yeah? <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. I got a smile. All right. We're working. We're working. We're working. Come on. Come on with me. All right. All right. Come on closer to me so he's a little comfortable with me. There he is. All right. Praise the Lord here. I'm going to do this. Ah. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is this morning to lift up to you Jonah Ian and to lift him before you, Lord God, that you, Father, would bless him and strengthen him and encourage him as you do with Chris and with, with Liz. And Lord, we're just so thankful, Father, that their, their heart's desire is to dedicate themselves in bringing up uh, Jonah Ian in the nurture and the admonition of your precious and holy word. We are thankful, Father, for this opportunity. And we pray, Lord God, that as you uh, allow Jonah to grow in this household, that he will hear your word, that he will indeed, Father, see the importance of it in his life. And that, Lord, as he grows up, he will have that opportunity to himself say with his own heart, through his own mouth, uh, his, his commitment, and make that commitment to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we here today surround them with our prayers. We surround them, Lord God, with encouragement. 
Lord, we take hold of the responsibility that we have as their church family, Lord God, to encourage them and, and to be there for them in whatever way we can to see Jonah, Ian grow in your love and grace. So, Father, today we lift him now to you and we thank you, Father, for, uh, for lending him and bringing him into this, into this life and into this world and into, into uh, Liz and Chris's life so that they, Lord God, will dedicate themselves in their love for you and in bringing him up in that nurture and admonition. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right. Did good. <laughs> Thank you, guys. God bless you. God bless you. Let me give you this uh, certificate here. There we go. You're welcome. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Kids are less scared of me now. It's, it's pretty cool. Uh, they were shaving off all that hair off my face or something, I think. That might have been some of it. All right. Well, this morning I'd like to draw your attention to Genesis chapter 25. You can't see it on this side. I probably could see it on this side better. But uh, anyway, when, when you get to see in the scriptures, they'll, they'll be a little more clear to you. Genesis 25. We're continuing on in our study of the book of Genesis. And uh, we began last week as we looked at the the end of Abraham's life and as we're pressing on to look at the life of Isaac. But we also were introduced once again to the life of Ishmael, the son of Abraham through Hagar, or Hagar, the uh, handmaiden of Sarah. And uh, as I looked at this particular chapter in preparation for the studies in this chapter, I realized that there are some very important issues that we need to deal with, not only with the generations of Ishmael that we see here in this particular section that we're dealing with at uh, at the onset of our study, but but also with the prophetic implications that, um, that we find that are affecting our world today. And uh, I think it'll be clear as, as, we, as we get into our study. So uh, we're going to begin by looking at the, uh, Genesis 25, verses 12 to 26. But I want to read to you, first of all, verses 12 through 18. That'll be our, uh, our starting point for this morning's study. <clears throat> now, this is the genealogy of Ishmael. The generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael, by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebaiot, then Kedar, (coughs) Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Maza, Hadar, Tema, Yetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements. Twelve princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. In wondrous grace, the Lord God gratified what may have been the three greatest desires of Abraham's heart, apart from his pure desire to serve the God who was his friend. Three longings, three desires that some people have toward the end of their lives. Sometimes they seem to be allowed or manifested. Uh, Other times they aren't and become only wishes until death. 
But the first longing had to be the matter of Abraham's paternal desires. And we look back at verse 9 of this chapter, where it says, His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite. What more could a good, full, old man want than that? Here was Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman Hagar, the dear young man Abraham was obliged to send away so many years before. Now come home to bury his old father. Besides, whatever dislike he might once have had with Isaac seemed to be buried, at least for now. The two of them, Ishmael and Isaac, appear to have acted in perfect harmony at the graveside of the patriarch. That was his paternal desire that his sons would be there to bury him. But he also had a second longing, a longing that concerned the matter of his personal desire. We see that in verse 10, where it says there toward the end, there Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. If Abraham had one personal desire in death, it was that he might lie for the rest of time alongside his beloved Sarah. And the Lord granted that desire as well. But there was a third and final longing of Abraham. And that concerned the matter of his patriarchal desire. He had a paternal desire to see his sons be there for his, for his death and his personal desire of being alongside his wife. Sarah, but now a very serious and and, and necessary concern and desire. And that was his patriarchal desire, and that is found in verse 11, where it says there that God blessed his son Isaac. It came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. Abraham's desire as a patriarch, that the covenant blessing be confirmed to Isaac, was fulfilled, and it was. It was promised years and years ago, years and years before Isaac ever came to be. And God told Abraham that he would fulfill that promise, and Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God. <clears throat> we need to trust God. You know, we, we've, we've been saying this week in and week out, especially as we've been studying the life of Abraham over many, many weeks. But here was a simple man who simply trusted God. And he believed at the end of his life that God would be faithful to carry on the work, the line, the intentions that God needed to fulfill since Genesis 3.15 when he promised the seed of the woman and that that seed would come through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So in keeping now with his normal historical perspective. Moses, the author who penned the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Scriptures. Moses kept his eye on on the Messianic line in chapter 25. And when dealing with the genealogies of Genesis, he consistently cleared up certain parallel lines or or collateral lines, as it were, uh, and, and got them out of the way before concentrating on the story of Isaac. In other words, he, he rounds out now the story of Ishmael and he gets him out of the way before concentrating on the story of the promised seed uh, to Abraham, which is, of course, his son Isaac. But we won't get him out of the way as quickly because along with focusing our attention on the generations coming from Abraham, there are prophetic implications that we need to deal with that are affecting our world every day. They're affecting our world even now. And it is that Arab-Israeli conflict that is at the center of many of the global tensions that are felt worldwide. You, you can, if you pay any attention to the news at all, and you see all of the conflicts, all of the struggles and trials going on in every area, in every part of the world, in many cases, the root of all of those uh, tensions go right back to the very epicenter 
which is in the Middle East, and more particularly, it is in the city of Jerusalem, in the heart of Israel. And if you, if you take the time to look at all of those tensions across the world, you see that some, some tie comes all the way back to that place. And one reason that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> one reason that there is, uh, there are so many misconceptions about what's going on is because there are misconceptions about Arab identity in terms of prophetic issues. Consider that God chose the Jewish people to give the world the scriptures, the word of God, and it was through the Jewish people that he provided the Messiah. God chose the Jewish people to bring the word of God to mankind. God chose the the children of Israel to bring forth the Messiah, the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15, to deliver man from their sins. The Jews also served as, and, and also serve today as the Lord's prophetic time clock. Since he points to future events in their history as the key to the timing of other important events. Take for instance what Jesus said, uh, that he would return at a time when Jerusalem was back in the hands of the Jews. Well, he says this in Luke 21 verse 24. He says, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led cap- away captive into all nations, which has already happened. Happened, And Jerusalem, it says, will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And in 1967, after the Six-Day War, Israel was, uh, Jerusalem was back in the hands of the state of Israel. Now, there have been other conflicts since, and other wars since, but we can, we can pretty much say that the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled. But when we consider now what was chosen by the Lord for Israel to do, does all this mean that God has no blessings for the many Arab peoples? Not at all. The Lord has given them great blessings in the past, and He has great blessings reserved for them in the future. But the problem is, and we just want to take a little time to deal with this today, is the issue of Arab identity. Who are the Arab peoples? A popular misconception is that Arab identity is determined by religion. The thought is that if you are a Muslim, that you are an Arab. That isn't true. One of the most populous Muslim nations in the world is Indonesia, which is an island nation in Southeast Asia. Indonesians are not Arabs. They are Malays. Similarly, the nation of Iran... And Iran is in the news quite a bit nowadays. But the nation of Iran is composed primarily of Muslims, but they are not Arab Muslims. Because the people of Iran are Persians. And then there are also Christian Arabs. Christian Arabs scattered all across the Middle East. When you go to Israel, which I hope we will be able to do that in a year from next month, But when we go to Israel, we we begin to realize there are many, many Christian Arabs there. Some of them will call themselves Palestinians. We won't get into that issue today. We have before and we will again, but not today. But the city, for example, the city of Bethlehem is a Christian Arab town. Arab identity is not determined by religion. Most Arabs are Muslims, but not all. And all Muslims are not Arabs. Arab identity is determined by ethnic heritage. And what is amazing is that all Arabs, like all Jews, are descended from the family of Abraham. Please remember that. All Arabs, like all Jews, are descended from the family of Abraham. So, that means that the Arab-Israeli conflict is a family dispute. It is the longest running and most intense family squabble in history. The sad thing is that it all began when Abraham and Sarah tried to help God out. Y'all remember that in chapter 16? They tried to help God out. I mean, that's a nice way of saying that they decided to get ahead of God. Concerning their impatience with God's promise that Abraham would be given an heir. 
And it was Sarah who suggested that Abraham have relations with Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian handmaid. And from that union, Ishmael was born. But the Lord made it clear that Ishmael would not be the child of promise through whom all the world would be blessed. Take, for example, Genesis 17, verses 20 and 21. It says, and as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. Now, I want you to notice these five things. There will be five other things, and they're, they're blessings. But notice these things. Behold, I have blessed him. That's a blessing in itself. I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes. In other words, there's some stature behind the sons of, of Ishmael. And I will make him a great nation. But notice verse 21. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. So not only does God bless Ishmael, but he promised his descendants the land east of Canaan. That goes back to part of our text today, which is verse 18 in Genesis 25. When it's parenthetically given to us, they dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go toward Assyria. And then it says that he died in the presence of all his brethren. Now, that's an interesting statement, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But Ishmael's 12 sons would occupy the land of Havilah, or the area in north-central Arabia, to Shur. Now, folks, that is talking about what we know today as Saudi Arabia. And how interesting that in Saudi Arabia today, there are princes. They are truly Arabs. And they have princes. They're pretty rich, too. They have a lot of oil. And so they make no bones about their being, you know, uh, descendants of, of Ishmael, as it were. And then, of course, the land is extended between Beersheba and Egypt. Also keep in mind that the Lord said to Hagar regarding the descendants of Ishmael this. And this is quite important for us to understand. And I, and I only bring this up because it is God who tells the mother of Ishmael these things prophetically to say not only is Ishmael going to have this characteristic in his life, or I should say these characteristics in his life, but these are going to be passed on to his descendants. What are they? It says, he shall be a wild man. Now, please don't get mad at me. I'm, I'm just reading what the Lord says. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man. And every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. There's that statement again. There is, in the context of, that, of, of this particular verse how that statement fits at the end of Ishmael's life. He died in the presence of, his, of all his brethren. He shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren in the midst of this particular aspect of their lives that is passed down. Because that is exactly what we see today, the Ishmaelites living in hostility, not only to each other, but especially toward the children of Israel. And yet they're all brothers, and they can't even get along. Just as the Lord said. Because it isn't just what happens against Israel. Think about this. How many people in, in these nations where suicide bombings take place that it's Muslim killing Muslim? Because there are Sunni Muslims, there are Shia Muslims, Shiite Muslims, Sunni Muslims, but they're killing each other. They don't even love each other, but together they hate Israel. Is that not in some complexity what we see in this particular verse? That God prophesied this and it's happening before our eyes today. The Lord had promised Abraham that the son of the bondwoman should not go unblessed. But since Ishmael had spurned spiritual things in mocking Isaac, the Lord could not bless him in spiritual blessings. And, and this is what kind of stirs in my heart that Ishmael... In his condition, because we're going to talk a little bit more about him here in just a moment, but in his condition was prime then for a religion like Islam. Because he had rejected 
the relationship that Abraham had with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ishmael, Ishmael spurned spiritual things in mocking Isaac. The Lord did not bless him in spiritual blessings, but He did bestow him temporal blessings. Consider, if you will, that here was a man, Ishmael, who was rich, increased in goods, and felt his need of nothing. Sounds like the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. Rich and having need of nothing. And yet, as we learned last time, when when Ishmael died at the age of 137, he fell short of his own desires. While his father Abraham died full and satisfied. Why? Because Abraham believed God, followed God, obeyed God. And he trusted the Lord with all of his heart. When we see the ending of the life of Ishmael, it's just little facts. Little trivia, as it were. Let's look at it again, verse 12. It says, now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebaiot, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsa, Mishma, Duma, Maza, Hadar, Tema, Yatur, Nafish, and Kedema. Abraham, did you notice in verse 12, by the way, Abraham is mentioned twice in Ishmael's notable birth. Because it is a reminder, to some extent, it is a reminder that Ishmael had no excuse for ever rejecting the God of Abraham. Ishmael had no excuse for ever rejecting the God of Abraham. He was, in fact, privileged to have been born into a home where the truth of God was known and obeyed. He was born of a man who became known in Scripture as the friend of God. There is no hint anywhere. Look through the Scriptures. There is no hint anywhere that Ishmael ever bowed to the eternal purposes of God in Christ or that he ever came to know God for himself. We can hear a lot of people talk about God today, but are they talking about the God of creation? Are they talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Are they talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons? Are they talking about that God? And do they, have, do they make any moves whatsoever toward doing those things that honor God and honor His truth and honor His blessings by obedience? We don't see it in the life of Ishmael. Even Ishmael's mother, Hagar, came to know who God was. She gave a name to that area where Isaac would eventually settle in Be'er Lahai Roy, which means the God who knows and sees. But Ishmael, he could not help but know about God, the circumstances of his birth and upbringing took care of that, but he never came to know God for himself. Have you come to know God for yourself? We must ask ourselves that question today. Because before we close the the chapter on on, on Ishmael, I want you to see that there were five triumphs and a final tragedy in his life. There were five triumphs and, and a final tragedy in the life of Ishmael. We already had seen five very generalized blessings given earlier on to Ishmael in, in, in chapter 17. But now look here in verses 16 through 18 of of our text today. <clears throat> it says, These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names. Notice this. Names. By their towns. And their settlements. Let me stop there for just a moment, because in, uh, the word settlements there, in the King James Version of the Bible, it is the word castles. In others, it is encampments. Uh, in, in other translations, uh, another word is fortresses. But when you consider settlements, fortresses, castles, encampments, literally what it's representing is power. It is representing power. So let's consider then they have names, towns, power, princes, and nations. Because it says 12 princes according to their nations. Five triumphs 
These were the years of the life of Ishmael. Now we, we kind of close the, the book here. 137 years and he breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people. We're told where they, where they were sent to, to dwell. They dwell from Havilah as far as Shur, as, which is east of Egypt. As you go toward Assyria, he died in the presence of all his brethren. When you do a closer examination of that last phrase, as we've already touched upon it, it actually means more of the struggle that was to take place between the brethren, as, as it were. But in any, in any event, those five triumphs of Ishmael, names, towns, power, princes, nations, if linked to modern-day Islamic expansion, all five of these triumphs, if linked to modern Islamic expansion today, are all carnal and fleshly, worldly triumphs. When you consider Islam for what it is, apart from its quasi-religious uh, tone, it's a, it's a plan to overtake uh, the whole world. And uh, they seem to be succeeding by using religion as, as, as a means. Think about it. History may show how Ishmael has enjoyed in full measure all that God pledged to him. But the Spirit of God jots down Ishmael's triumphs in the barest fashion possible. I called it trivial. Because he spends no time on them. He doesn't elaborate on them all. That's why I I read you names. We could actually take some of those names of the sons of of Ishmael and find regions where they they themselves were dwelling after, uh, let's say, uh, a number of years in history. That would take a lot of time, but... But, but here again, I'm, I'm trying to show you how, how the Holy Spirit doesn't spend any time on them and He doesn't elaborate on them. It's as if the Lord was saying, so much for Ishmael. He has had His good things. He's been given blessings and they're all here on earth. In the light of eternity, they are not worth another thought. In the life of eternity, they are not worth another thought. You can think of a person who spends all of his time trying to gain treasures in this world, trying to gain fame and fortune and and, and reputation and all of those things. But then at some point that person dies and what does he have left? But what he had on this earth. And that's it. Because as it has been said in many different ways, you can't take it with you. You just can't take it with you. Unless... You know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and what you have, you will have for eternity with Him. That you can take with you. His life, His love, His grace, His mercy, His peace, His joy, His riches, all we take when we die. We leave everything here, but we go to be with Him. Is there any greater blessing than that? Hello, is there any greater blessing than that? I was wondering if maybe you were just thinking about it. How rich those blessings are. (laughs) They're great, aren't they? All right. I'm glad you're awake. Me too. I'm I'm awake too. I'm excited about the blessings that God gives us. But Ishmael, you see, it just comes to an end. The tragedy is mentioned before is that Ishmael fell short. Even in the presence of his brethren. When when Jacob, who is Israel by the way, when Jacob, who also had 12 sons, and this is why I want to make this comparison, when Jacob, who also had 12 sons, was on his deathbed. And and we haven't even talked about his character. There was a lot of things we're still yet to talk about in Jacob's life. But when he was on his deathbed many years later, He gathered together his 12 sons around him and he poured out his heart to them along spiritual lines. For each one of his sons, he had a word from God before he died. What a difference. Ishmael had 12 sons. He gives them names and and reputations and towns and fortresses and power and princes and all of that. And then it just, now he's dead. But Isaac knew God, and Jacob knew God. And Jacob taught his children, his 12 sons, about God. 
and spoke to them words from God about their lives and about their futures. But not Ishmael. Ishmael died as he lived. He, 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 he died spiritually bankrupt, leaving nothing of eternal value to his children. At least we're not given any indication that he leaves them anything of value. Is that how we are to live? Passing nothing of eternal value on to our children. Today we, we had a beautiful child dedicated unto the Lord. And his parents are, de- are, are dedicating themselves to teaching him eternal values. Will we take that challenge as well and begin to teach eternal values to our children? And not only to our children, but to everyone that we know needs to know about Jesus Christ. You see, what we read earlier in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's all about teaching our children about the Word of God and about the values of serving a God who is awesome and great and mighty and power, but who loves loves us and who extends His grace toward us. Jewish children are taught those things. And we might say, yeah, but they don't know Jesus. Well, you know what? Pray for them so that they will see Jesus. But they take the Word of God. They take the Law of God. They take the Torah and they teach it to their children. Their children are growing up understanding these things because they tell them about, they tell their kids about God. Almighty God. And I bring this up because the contrast, and maybe you've already seen those videos on YouTube or or even on the news of Muslim children, some not even five years of age, yet holding a rifle and having, uh, you know, the, the... the propaganda on, on a headband and, and saying at their young age, death to Israel, death to America. Have you seen it? I have. That's what they're being taught. Jewish children are being taught about the God of life, the God of Israel, who is the God of peace. Do we see a difference? And may I say to you, though, many of us know good Arab people. I I grew up in a a Syrian neighborhood with a lot of Syrians. They were my friends, and, 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 and I learned a lot about their culture. They were Christians. They were believers. And they're, they're good Arab people. There are some good Muslims that, uh, that just don't know the truth and that, uh, you know, the Lord is opening their eyes. If, if, if you keep up with, with Joel Rosenberg and his, in his ministry, uh, Arabs are coming to the Lord. Uh, Muslims are coming to the Lord. And, and, and we should continue to pray for that. Because Jesus came to die for the Jew and the Gentile. All of us. But now we see somewhat of the, of, of the, of the foundation of, of what is taking place today. That is why I want to tell you right now, do not disregard what is happening prophetically today. Do not disregard what is happening in, in, in the world, especially in the Middle East today, because God is telling you, I told you what it says. I told you ahead of time what's going on there, what happened. That tells us two things. God is faithful and God's word is reliable. So why are we then living as if it isn't? I want to encourage you, be looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. And as you look for the coming of Jesus Christ, live your life as if it's the last day that you have to live. Live it to the fullest for the sake of Jesus Christ. Live it to the fullest to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior. Live it to tell others about Jesus. Let's look at the children of Isaac now. 
in the end of this passage, 8, 19 through 26. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. There's the genealogy. That's it. Abraham begot Isaac. Because then we're told a story. We're told an account. We're told in, in verse uh, 20, it says, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. But look at verse 21. Now, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Does that sound familiar? His own mother, Sarah. His own mother, Sarah, was barren for years, many more years than Rebecca was. And we have to ask the question, was, was, was Isaac pleading before God in desperation or was he pleading before God in faith? Because Abraham and Sarah both had enough time to tell Isaac as he was growing up, listen, we went a long time before you came along. I was 100 years old when you were born. And your mom was 90 years old when, she was, when you were born. But we waited because God's timing is always perfect. And son, if ever you come upon this kind of a struggle or this kind of a trial, just remember God is faithful. Remember God promised me that I would have a son of promise. And you're, you're, you're him. You're the son of promise. And we are, we are recipients of God's blessings because, you see, it goes all the way back to when man fell and, need, and, and, and there's a need for a Messiah, Savior. And we are in that line. So no matter what happens, you can trust God is going to be faithful. It still brought Isaac to plead before God. Why? Because we should all plead before God. In our lives, we should pray. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the situation. Well, Rebecca was barren. But it says the Lord granted his plea and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. Well, this is another story. The children struggled together within her and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? I mean, typical of a pregnant woman. Right? Everybody's happy because I'm pregnant, but is it going to be like this all the way through? Two kids inside of her battling. Those of you who've had children, you probably understand a little bit of that, right? Some of you have had maybe a rough pregnancy or have had it, you know, before. And you say, this isn't well. It doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't feel good. Lord God, why nine months? Why not nine days? So she went on to inquire of the Lord. What did she do? She also went to the Lord. What does that tell us about Isaac and Rebekah? They trusted God together. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. <laughs> she gave birth to a big stuffed animal. <laughs> so they called his name Esau, which actually means hairy, H-A-I-R-Y. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his, his name was called Yaakov, Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So after briefly mentioning Ishmael's line, the, the narrative now returns to the chosen line of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, and according to verse 26, it would be another 20 years before they would have any children. But like Abraham and Sarah, they had to wait before the Lord uh, sent them a son. In fact, it became a matter of that special prayer that we talked about. And Rebekah and her barrenness serves as an example Rebecca in her barrenness serves as an example for the many believers who are truly saved and truly linked in saving faith to the Lord Jesus, but remain spiritually barren and who never bring any lasting fruit for God. Folks, that could be some of us today in here. 
We've come to know Jesus Christ. We've made that, uh, we've made that uh, commitment to the Lord. We've received Him as our Lord and Savior. Our lives have been changed. We know that. But somewhere along the line, you know, or somewhere along the way, we've, we've kind of set a lot of that aside. And, and, and we're no longer fruitful for the Lord. Uh, what we are is barren. We're barren. Rebecca's problem is their problem. They, they're, they're barren. And notice that the barrenness is not Isaac's. That's made very clear in our text. But if we are to trace the problem of our spiritual barrenness to its proper source, then we must acknowledge that the problem lies, not, it lies in us and not in Christ. The problem is not Jesus, folks, in other words. If we're barren, we're not bar- if we're barren, we are barren because of us, not because of Him. Now, He is all that He should be. The fact is beyond doubt. Our failure to bring forth fruit cannot be laid at His door. It must be laid at ours. But the beautiful thing is, and there is, a, there is something beautiful about this statement. The beautiful thing is that Isaac did not blame Rebekah. For while the thought lay in her, it was not really her fault at all. How many of you remember that you were born in sin? We all were born in sin, right? Every hand should go up. We were all born in sin. But our parents didn't blame us. Hopefully as, as Christian parents, they brought us up and they loved us to teach us. You were born in sin. You need to come to Christ Jesus yourself. Because you see, God doesn't have any grandchildren. Have you seen anywhere in the Word of God that it says that God has grandchildren? He doesn't. He only has children. Why is that? Because all of us have to come by faith. All of us. We cannot say... We cannot go to heaven, you know, someday, as, as, as people have always told the stories of St. Peter being at the gates, you know, and tell St. Peter, well, I should come in because my parents are Christians. Doesn't work that way. We, we can't be grandfathered in. We have to come ourselves. We have to realize that we're sinners and that we need a Savior and that we need salvation through Jesus. And he came to pay the price by dying on the cross for our sins. So we need to come to that understanding. So the beautiful thing is that Isaac did not blame Rebekah for while the fault lay in her, it was not really her fault at all. She had inherited death in her womb. But Isaac interceded for Rebekah, so the Lord intercedes for us. God wants us fruitful. God wants us fruitful. And I'm not saying this to, you know, to discourage those of you who have may, may have been very, uh, barren physically. It's not to discourage you. I'm talking about what is spiritual and what we all need to deal with. God wants us all to be spiritually fruitful. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 15, verses 4 through 8. I know it's small up there. I did that so you can look at your Bibles. John 15, verses 4 through 8. Abide in me, he said, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. You see, it's, we can't bear fruit of ourselves. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Do you notice the context of the statement, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you? I want to ask the Lord for what? To bear fruit. I want to ask the Lord to bear fruit for His kingdom. And He says, if you ask, it shall be done. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. That is the context. So you will be my disciples. God wants us all as believers in Jesus Christ to bear fruit for Christ and for His kingdom. Let's get back to Isaac. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer. Rebecca became pregnant, but there seemed to be a problem with the pregnancy. Turmoil in the womb, you might say. And Rebecca sought the Lord, as we said, regarding this uh, situation uh, in verses 22 and 23. So we get back to our text here. And it says, but the children struggled within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? Why is this happening? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, two people shall be separated from your body, one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, the Lord does explain to Rebekah what is going on in her womb. She has twins, and they will become two nations, and yet the younger will be served by the older. That is 
totally upside down from the way the world sees things. The older is always served by the younger. That was the way it was in the, in the life of David. David was the youngest of his family in the, in the, in the family of Jesse. Do you remember when Samuel goes to Jesse's house and, and he says, it is out of your house I need to look at your sons because God is going to pick a new king. And he looks at all the, the sons of Jesse and they all come and they parade in front of him. You know, they're tall and strong and, and handsome and, and whatnot. And, and, but, but Samuel says, you know, it's, the Lord even has to remind him, it's not what you see on the outside, it's what's inside. And he said, do you have any other sons? He says, yeah, uh, yeah, it's David, but he's out there with the sheep, you know. And Samuel says, bring him. He was the youngest. He was serving everybody else. Because the younger always served the elders. And they brought David in. And Samuel saw him. And God said, that is who I want. You see, God does everything different from the world. Always remember that. So, two nations, the the younger is going to be served by the older, and that was God's promise to her. You see, it it was usually the firstborn that received the blessing, the double portion of the inheritance. But now God turns the tables and says that the older will serve the younger. And what, what, what we need to know is this is why we've had to break up this, this whole chapter because of the, uh, the, the birthright that we're going to deal with next week in, in, in between Isaac and, and uh, I'm sorry, between Esau and Jacob. So this is the sovereign will of God. And all I want to say is that we need to begin to realize that this is the sovereign will of God and we need to understand that the Lord does not play favorites. He has a plan. And this was his plan. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9 regarding these two boys, Esau and and Jacob. And he also tells us of the sovereign will of God. He says in verses 10 through 14, he says, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, speaking of, of course, Isaac, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, so, you know, that's not in the equation, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. God forbid. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? The logical conclusion would be that Jacob was better than Esau. But that was truly not the case. In fact, Paul tells us that it was not of works or the things that they did. Then what was it based on? It was based on God's sovereign election. Made before they were born. That's Paul's point in in Romans 9. It was made before they were born. I mean, that is sometimes hard for our finite minds to comprehend. I will tell you right now, I don't understand it fully. So if I ask you, do you all understand it fully? You should say, no. None of us understand it fully. But think about it this way. Why did God choose the nation of Israel? The Jews. To be his representative to the world. Why, why did he choose them? I mean, let's take it back to Exodus chapter 32 verse 9 for just a moment. Or actually move forward to Exodus 32 verse 9. Because here, Lord is speaking to Moses and the Lord says to Moses, I've seen these people. Who are they? The children of Israel. I've seen these people. And indeed it is as a stiff-necked people. He says, man, they're terrible people. He's saying of his own people. They're not really all that good. You got the picture now? It's clear that it wasn't because of how good they were, but it was God's sovereign election. Going back to Deuteronomy for just a moment, chapter 7. I even made the letter smaller, so you can't read up here. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, find it in your Bibles, verses 6 to 8. For you are a holy people. God is speaking to Israel. For you are a holy people. In other words, you are a set-apart people to the Lord your God. This is coming through Moses, but God is speaking to them. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord, now here it is, the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you are more in number or were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But... 
because the Lord loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I didn't do it because you're good. In fact, you're not very good at all. I did it because I love you. Did he call any of us because we're good? In fact, not at all. Why? Because we were all born in sin. And the Bible tells us, especially in the book of Romans, there is none good. No, not one. It's, it's in the prophets. There is none good. No, not one. I am not the pastor of this church because I'm such a great guy. Or because I'm really handsome. Or because I'm really smart. Or because I'm so special that God needed me. I think there's some guys, there are pastors today that actually think that God needs them. God doesn't need any of us. In fact, it was because of His sovereign election and that always humbles me. I mean, it humbles me to my face on the ground before God that He would choose me. I mean, let's face it. The fact that the Lord used a donkey in the Old Testament to speak forth His words... But you know what? The Lord does have His purpose. And He does have His plan. And He does not choose arbitrarily. But He does know the beginning from the end. And the end from the beginning. And we're almost close to the end now. Let's go back and look at the birth of of Jacob and Esau. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, red like the soil, (laughs) the fertile soil. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Yaakov. Isaac was 60 years old when when she bore him. I love that name, Yaakov. Some of us here today uh, have named our children Jacob. Great name. I mean, Esau's hairy, but my kid's name is Jacob. (laughs) Yep, thief. (laughs) Supplanter. Deceiver. That's what Yaakov means. Heel catcher. Well, we'll consider their names a little bit more and their characters in greater detail next time. But, but that's uh, who we're dealing with. And by the way, it's okay to name your kids Yaakov because you see, the Lord will always call them Israel because that's how he changed Jacob's name. Changed it later on to Israel. But when we consider Esau and, and Jacob... And the fact that it says that the older would serve the younger. When would Esau, the older, serve Jacob, the younger? Well, it wouldn't be in their lifetime, but in their descendants. And so when Paul quotes Malachi, as he does in Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3, where it says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And the Lord says to them, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. And folks, when you go to Israel, and we, we spend time in the south part of Israel, we look across from the Dead Sea and we see the mountains of Edom in Jordan. Those are the mountains that Malachi is, is talking about, that the Lord is talking about in Malachi. You get to see them. They're there. And they're laid waste. As a matter of fact, that whole land down in that south, southern area is laid waste. You see, God was speaking of nations and not individuals. And in Obadiah, another minor prophet in in our scriptures, God declares his hatred over the Edomites for their idolatry and for, for their violence against Israel and for their rejoicing when Israel was defeated in battle. So those are the descendants of Esau. And we'll see more about that when we get into our next study. But I want to leave you actually with, a, with Romans chapter 6, verse 6. This is going to be our closing verse. 
And, I, and we're going to close with this for two reasons. The, the, the first reason is, of course, that uh, we haven't talked a whole lot. We have a little bit, but not a whole lot about the, the blood of Jesus Christ. We have not talked about the cross of Jesus Christ and the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross. I don't like to leave uh, any, any time, you know, without mentioning what Jesus Christ did for us to save us from our sins. And so I, I, I want to mention this, this particular verse. Knowing this, Paul says that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. The second reason I want to close with this is because it does have some relevance to the struggle that was within Rebecca. Because the struggle also indicates the struggle of two natures. Two natures that we struggle with all the time. Every day. The nature of the flesh and the nature of the Spirit. That struggle is within each and every one of us. Now, the important thing is for us to know is that we're, no, we're to no longer be slaves of sin. We have to give everything to Jesus Christ because He took everything to the cross. He took all of our sins. He took all of our grief. He took all of our pain. He took all of our guilt and our shame and He nailed it on the cross because He nailed Himself there. And so, our old man was crucified with Him. Do we still struggle every day? Yes. But you know what? We do not serve sin any longer. Do not let sin have dominion over you this week. We have conquered. You know, Ishmael had his five triumphs and his one tragedy. We have one triumph. That's Jesus Christ. We have the cross. We have an empty cross and an empty tomb. It is one triumph. We stand on that. Stand on it. God loves you. And God has blessed you. So, we'll come back to Genesis 25, close it out next time. And then we get to see a little bit more about Jacob and Esau and their struggles. But we're not going to struggle anymore. We're going to pray. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for...